You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I am, I am, I am your host, and my name is Abraham. (laughs) And I, on the day that I was born, and prior to the day that I was born, I was given the name Shane. It's a Christian name. I guess that's what it is. I think it means gift from God, too, which is even better. Right. God-given name, Shane. <laughs> God-given name, Shane. That's me. I'm your co-host. Thank you. <laughs> Welcome to our podcast. We are a psychology podcast. We're just trying to explain the world, you know? We're trying to explain why people do what they do and why animals do what they do and and why things, things what they things and all that. So, Welcome. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> yeah, it's been a, uh, an adventure, to say the least, because if this is the first time you're joining us, go back through our catalog. You'll see that we have interviewed humans, which are larger organisms. We have done episodes on mad cow disease and syphilis, which have to do with smaller organisms. We have also talked about the universe at some level. So, you know, we try to really we have a broad stroke when it comes to this, the topics that we cover and, and just just the subject matter at hand. Speaking of broad strokes, not at all. Have you heard about (laughs) (laughs) these ranchers? I believe this was in Africa, and I might be wrong about that. And I think this was in the 1900s. Man, I missed some critical information here. (laughs) But there were these ranchers, and they started killing these tri-colored, non-domesticated dogs. So they were wild dogs that had these sort of weird, splotchy, three-color schemes in their coats. And they believed, most of them, I guess that the dogs were eating their livestock. So these are farmers, they're trying to raise livestock, and they were afraid that when their livestock would die off, it was because these dogs were killing them. And so these ranchers, to refer to them, simply called them wild dogs. They look like dogs. They're pretty similar to dogs. Turns out they might not be dogs. But anyway, this name, wild dogs, stuck with them. And so that sort of became their unofficial, official designation when people saw them. I have not heard the story, so I'm excited to hear more about it. So. What ends up happening with these ranchers, though, the parts that I have heard, at least, (laughs) is that they carried out an extermination fight that destroyed the animal's population over decades. So over over time, these wild dogs got very close to extinct to the point where there were very few people who were concerned about these wild dogs. These wild dogs weren't as much of a problem anymore because their population had diminished so much. Well, and and because they were just wild dogs, so nobody's going to care if the wild dogs are disappearing. But... As many of our more well-informed listeners will probably already know, when you have a species that has evolved, they probably evolved to fill a particular economic niche or evolutionary niche in the ecosystems in which they exist. There are times when that's not the case, particularly with things like invasive species. But in this case, they were. They were an important contribution to the ecosystem, and they were now nearing the verge of extinction because they were being specifically targeted for extermination by people who were manipulating that ecosystem. Now, what's important here, too, is that upon further investigation, researchers actually found that those these wild dogs were responsible for less than 10% of all of the livestock and cattle death that the ranchers were experiencing. Instead, what they found out is that this had more to do with people poaching each other's cattle as well as other invasive or other not invasive, but other species that were killing their cattle, those wild dogs were mostly hunting wild other wildlife out and about. They didn't want to be around humans. So it was just a, a misconception, I guess, and an unfairly targeted them. And some people using those dogs as a scapegoat when they were actually stealing their neighbor's cattle. I love the fact that we talk that we're talking about like, and this is perfect human fashion, right? Where it's like, it's not our fault. It's them. Get them. And it ends up being that the humans are the invasive species. So, you know, history repeats itself. So (laughs) now what's really great about kind of what happens here is that conservationists approached this as a marketing issue and came up with a plan to rename the animal. And the question is, could this actually work? Could renaming something called a wild dog or with a culturally relevant name of wild dogs, how could that actually impact the species? Right. So to use a very overused cliched quote at this time i apologize for those of you who are going to immediately recognize what i'm doing here but i'm going to use it anyway quote tis but thy name that is my enemy thou art thyself though not a not a montague what's montague it's not a hand nor foot nor arm nor face oh be some other name belonging to a man what's in a name 
that which we call a rose by any other word would smell as sweet, end quote. So most of you will recognize this from brilliant. Shakespeare. Thank you. That, I felt like my delivery was just, just terrible. Well, you did, weren't using your hands when you did it. That's so true. Uh, you weren't going, thou art thyself, though not a Montague. I need like, so that's, you have to use your hands. See, like it's just, it's, that's Shakespeare. I need gestures and props and costumes. I just, I can't just read this. Yeah. You can't read Shakespeare without a skull. So this is loosely a marketing episode, but what we're really actually talking about today is names and the role that names play in our sort of everyday interactions, because it's it's much more interesting than you might think. Yeah. So let's go ahead and dig in this a little bit and share some other examples of how this might work. But first, understanding kind of what the principal item that we're talking about here is the name or the label of something that is given to an organism, to a subject to a scenario, whatever it might be, we are talking about kind of the impact of that label, that name, that title. name that we give this thing, the title that's, yeah, there you go. So any of those things we're, that's what we're really focusing on is like the primary mover of these phenomena or the primary, like the active ingredient in these phenomenon. Yeah. And I mean, the, I don't know if we really need to do much of a definition here, but as you just said, like a name is essentially what we call something. And so that is when referring to a thing, some combination of words that represents an object, thought, person, whatever, that word we use to refer to something or label something or title something is its name, right? Right. And that what's kind of interesting about this and breaking down that definition, in my opinion, is the fact that you're sort of extracting that a name is not the thing itself. So if you've ever seen that painting that's of a uh, it's a painting of like a, a cob pipe uh-huh. and it says si si ne pas une pipe or peep I don't remember what it says it say in French but basically the it says underneath this is not a pipe point being it's not a pipe it's a picture of a pipe and also pipe is just a, a word that we use a pipe the word pipe is not actually a thing right things are, just are like with with or without names they just are and so I feel like it's kind of useful to just extract that when talking about when we're trying to understand and like discuss why we think names are so interesting and relevant. Yeah. So to kind of get out of the philosophic mindset of like, do names really matter? What's the point of everything? <laughs> Cause that's what right. it's really easy to do that, right? Like that painting will send you into an existential crisis if you're not prepared to think overtly about it. So we're going to reel it back in no existential crises here. And we're going to talk about a fish called a slime head. Okay. So there was this fish that used to be called a slime head and people weren't eating them, but fishermen ended up changing the name to orange roughy and people started gobbling them up. So not good for the fish, maybe great for the population of humans that were there. Maybe that had a, a scarce food source, but you'll see like just a simple name change now created this brand new food source that people could thrive on. And definitely good for the fishermen. Yeah. But yeah, so they're basically this easy to catch fish and they'd say, Hey, try this delicious slime head. And people are like, ew, I don't want to try a slime head. They're like, I mean, try this delicious orange roughy and like, oh, sweet. That sounds good. I'll, I'll do that. It's crazy how something that simple could have an impact. Now, this isn't the only example. No. Another one is when people who are in charge of marketing change the names of prunes to dried plums and dried plums are prunes like the nothing else about them changed. They just stopped calling them prunes <laughs> instead of instead started calling them dried plums. And when they did this, more people started eating them. They were perfectly happy with dried fruits, but they didn't like to eat something called prunes because of all of the associations that had begun to form around what a prune or something being pruny is. I love dried plums so much. Couldn't I never could eat prunes, but I love dried plums. But also, <laughs> <laughs> but also, uh, tobacco company Philip Morris rebranded itself as Altria to distance itself from tobacco industry reputations and. That from a business and marketing standpoint, yeah, that makes sense, right? Like if bad things have happened under the under one company's name, change the name and here we are. Brand new company, no bad history, right? I love you, Philip Morris. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> cool. Well, let's let's dig into this marketing concept here because I think this is it's so relevant to everything we're talking about with respect to understanding names and how they sort of work at a large scale. And going back to this this conversation we were having about animals and these efforts to potentially rename those wild dogs and see if the name itself would help, many conservationists have begun to look at the parallel issues between conservation efforts and customer engagement. And so these conservationists have sort of become ad hoc marketers or PR people. And specifically, the, the parallels here are how an audience perceives a product and how that's similar to how an audience perceives a species 
And for both of those things, the relative worthiness of, of that thing, like the relative value of it. And with respect to those species, how people then think of whether or not they want to protect and consider things like donations to support campaigns, to, to sport like images of that animal. They'll do that in the interest of trying to, to save those species or protect those species or gather funds for research for those species, whatever it might be, is a, a similar issue in this conservation world to general marketing in sort of a business sense, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, let's talk about brands for a second. So now a brand when used successfully is essentially a language unit, like a name or a logo, or, or it could be both. And that language unit carries meaning and influences with the way and how often people will think about that brand. So there are times where you'll see a logo and it is instantly recognizable, right? Red hats. Right. Yeah. Red hats. I mean, bam, you know what that means? It means Limp Biscuit. <laughs> <laughs> a unique brand is a critically important part of marketing. So like if you have a really good if you have a really good brand or a good logo or just some kind of something to indicate that this product is there, that will be one of the most effective things possible. Man, so got me really just think good. of a couple <laughs> I mean, we had to hit our limp biscuit quota for the day. I, it was it was bound to happen. That's right. So just think about some of the brands that you've that have become so common or that you know, the minute that you see it you immediately know what it is. Kleenex, Band-Aids, Google, Coke, if you're in the South, Coca-Cola specifically. If you're in Atlanta and you don't see a red Coke sign somewhere, you're in the you're in some weird part of Atlanta, like an alternate dimension Atlanta. <laughs> you're in you're in 2012 Atlanta. But this is important to know. Like you see those brands, you see those logos, you see those things and they immediately have all these relations and all these these connotations related to that thing. Oh, and so much so that people will use the brand name in place of the item itself. So it's not, I need a tissue, it's I need a Kleenex. Yeah. And that's become synonymous with I need a tissue. And Kleenex loves this. <laughs> They're like, right. absolutely, let's lean into this. Yeah. And the the Coke thing in the South, and, and I don't know if this is, this is true in Florida, I didn't experience it there, but I've heard that in generally in the South, you to ask for a soda, you ask for a Coke, and then they'll ask what kind. So like, oh, I want a Coke, and they'll say what kind, and you say a Mountain Dew. I'm like those are diff- uh -huh. those are different things to me. But yes, they are <laughs> in the in certain places in the South. Apparently, that's in the South United States. I should say that's how they that brand has become synonymous with soda. And again, Coke is like, yes, please, more of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, Florida's weird. Like, so in Georgia, yes, that would be the case. If you're in Florida, you just scream and somebody hands you a can of something. So that's usually what it is. <laughs> so Florida's a very strange place. A can of prune juice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can't get dried plum juice anywhere around here. So yeah, with this whole idea of talking about marketing and branding, the idea here is that a species name can be thought of as a brand. Okay. So a species or even a particular animal. And so um, there's, a, there's this one particular study, Wright and colleagues in 2015 said, quote, names are a key part of any brand and the same can be said for flagship species, end quote. And this really, I think, is, is the main part of this argument is that these conservation efforts have actually sort of rallied around one strategy being rebranding a species they're trying to conserve. And so this concept of naming is critical, as the authors point out, in citing a survey of several economies that, quote, their single most valuable asset is their brand. So given that kind of step in logic, right? So if a product is doing well and consumers of the product are identifying brands, identifying those species as flagship species, identifying those species and renaming them so that they have a name that's that's palpable. They have a a really cool logo or even educational stuff around that. That's going to provide a unique bit of information for that species and actually probably work to serve better conservation efforts than calling it their Latin names. Exactly right. And or their you know their scientific designations or whatnot. And so yeah, actually one of the initial efforts in this, even before it was considered from a marketing perspective, is there being a common name versus those official scientific names. For instance, Shane, are you one of those people whose favorite animal is the Alliuropoda melanoleuca? Come again. <laughs> so many of you of your listeners are probably trying to rack your brain for some cognate in what I said or some level of familiarity with the words that I use to determine if you know what that animal is or whether or not you like that animal. 
And of course, I use the sort of unknown scientific name for the beloved giant panda. Oh, I love giant pandas. (laughs) See? They're great. Yeah, that's a very different name. And the familiarity and your association with the name is really important. So the common name is important for the ease of communication between sort of the scientific community and then the lay public and everyone else, basically. That's a perfect demonstration of how naming something can really impact it. There's not a person in the world that's going to care about the Avrilia, but they're going to care about the the giant panda. That was the Latin name? Yeah, whatever. I, my mouth doesn't work like that. So real quick, though, before we go into the next section, kind of like some additional information on this, I'd like to take a break and ask about our vocabulary of the day. Abraham, what's a cognate? Oh, thank you. A cognate is a word that you can intuitively kind of figure out what that word means by the way that the word sounds in relation to other words that you've probably heard. So that is basically saying that it's a word that has the same linguistic similarity to another word that's similar to original word or a root word that you're likely to know. And so, for example, this is often used in languages like a cognate of uh, port in French and Spanish is similar to is door. It means door. But it it sounds similar, like we understand that port is kind of similar. If you were to go through a port, you understand that there's some kind of passageway that that refers to. All right. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. So the more you know. The more you know. Thank you for catching our vocabulary (laughs) this episode. You know, I have my moments. I have my moments. All right. So let's talk about some relevant information. Let's talk about some stuff that you will see outside of you know, kind of our basic introduction. And the first one we have to look at is a study from Karafa Draheim. Dreheim and Parsons 2012. That's what I'm going to go with. Yeah. In the Journal of Human Dimensions of Wildlife. So basically what they did was they conducted a study with, you guessed it, college undergrads, which <laughs> is the, the perfect research population, apparently. That's right. In which they asked 132 students to rank the level of support for conservation efforts for 20 different real and fictitious names. So 64% of the students were more concerned or reported a higher level of support with saving animal species whose names sound positive, more positive than negative, which they found 51% for the negative. So, for example, the Patriot Eagle versus the Sheep Killing Eagle. Same animal, different names. I mean, if I'm playing in a death metal band like Gate Creeper, then Sheep Killing Eagle sounds way cooler. But for most people, and particularly those finicky college undergrads, Patriot Eagle was more well-received. <laughs> yes, You'll see the same thing, too, where hairy-nosed otter versus furry-nosed otter versus rainforest otter. And this was kind of illuminated in Scott 2015 and that article. But you see those three different names there. Which one was the best one? What would you choose if you were to pick one of those three? I think from a cuddly standpoint, I would pick furry-nosed otter. But I feel like rainforest otter sounds really cool. You actually guessed it. Most people picked furry-nosed otter. All the same animal again, but with the different name of hairy-nosed otter versus furry-nosed otter. And then rainforest otter was one of the other options. I don't remember where that landed, but furry-nosed otter definitely beat hairy-nosed otter. So the students were twice as likely. So they were 14% compared to 7%. They're twice as likely to report being strongly against conserving species with negative connotations or even ones that were somewhat neutral. So for example, they were, they were less in favor of supporting conservation for coyote but more in favor of supporting conservation for the same animal, but with a more positive sounding name. You'll find that as we we go through some additional studies that you'll find similar results. So in 2014, a study was done where a rare species of pink dolphin called the Indo-Pacific humpback dolphin. Ew. Boo. <laughs> boo this dolphin. Changed its name to Chinese white dolphin and then to the Hong Kong pink dolphin. And then after that change, Conservation money started pouring in, and the Hong Kong pink dolphin was then chosen as the Hong Kong mascot. So now, this dolphin went from being a species of relative obscurity to being the mascot for one of the world's largest cities. And all they had to do was grab a name tag and just change their name, just stick it on their on their flipper, and people were like, "Hey, I like I like that one. That's a, that, that that one we need to save." And yeah, as you said, started receiving all this, yeah, all this money for conservation efforts. So that's how it works. They're the supreme of dolphins. <laughs> Dolphin supreme. <laughs> all right. So <laughs> going back to the, our previous discussion at the top of this episode, there were local conservation groups that took that wild dog and they renamed it the painted dog. 
And that simple rebranding was so successful that the population is actually starting to rebound and increase their numbers back to where they were supposed to be before they were being targeted for extermination. And arguably, I mean, this just shows how the power of language really works, right? Like I'm recognizing this as we're going through it. Wild dog versus painted dog. I think a painted dog sounds so endearing, but a yeah. wild dog sounds dangerous. Exactly. So, I mean, just even that's my own relation to it. And I imagine that many of our listeners are probably having a similar experience or something within that realm. And I mean, it's just amazing how language can really impact those types of things. Yeah, absolutely. Now, this is also relevant for sticking with the animal thing here. And we'd mentioned that idea of the, the slime head versus the orange roughy. Names are also important because there are legal ramifications for use of names illegally and specifically with respect to food. Right. And so in 2008, there was a paper by Jaquette and Polly in the journal Marine Policy, and they noted that 80% of the seafood in the U.S. is imported. So of the seafood in the United States, about 80% is imported. And as much as a third of it is mislabeled intentionally and unintentionally. So a mix of, of accidental mislabeling and purposeful mislabeling. Now, when done intentionally, it's usually to label a fish as a kind other than what it actually is to get more money for it. So taking a fish that's not going to sell for very well and calling it the name of a fish that would sell very well. And most people not really knowing the difference, particularly if it's already been skinned and deboned and all that, are like, cool, I'll take your slime head, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, and purchasing it. Now, for example, fishers were catching sea bass and then labeling those sea bass, which were easy to catch and abundant and nearby. They were labeling them as Alaskan halibut and giant perch. It was just sea bass, but they were just giving them different right. names. And then the Florida snapper was being labeled as the lavender job fish. <laughs> which apparently sold better than the Florida snapper. Fishers would also mislabel imported fish as local catch. And I mean, maybe they're local right. to the foreign people who were, you know, out catching them where they were catching them. Right. But that, that was another really important labeling is in some places, labeling something as local catch sold better than something that was imported. And in other places, calling it something foreign was uh, sold better. So they kind of just catered to whatever, label was going to fetch them the most money when they sold it to the the people who were going to then be distributing that those fish. I mean, we could spend a lot of time talking about the legalities of labeling and naming things like this. When I was working at a, let's say a large coffee corporation, <laughs> we'll call it that. So when I was working there, they actually changed the name of one of their drinks because they couldn't call it chocolate anymore because the ingredients they were using didn't have all the ingredients of formal chocolate by law. So they actually had to change the name from chocolate to chocolatey because it was close but it wasn't quite chocolate and i remember that change of being like this is bonkers to to see this but it was really an interesting thing I, that was like my first dive into like legal naming issues and there was the one recently where and i don't remember what country it was i want to say it was like ireland or something where they decided that subway bread couldn't be labeled as bread because it had so much sugar in it that it didn't meet the, their definition of bread so they couldn't call it that yeah, I thought that was really interesting. And then there are a few senators, I think senators, they're lawmakers of some kind in the United States that have been fighting tooth and nail to change the name of products that are milk alternatives so that they can't be called milk or meat alternatives so that they can't be referred to as meat. And to me, that is just absolutely ludicrous for so many reasons, in my opinion. First of all, for the ones that are milk alternatives, they're specifically trying to cater to a group of people who are looking for a milk alternative. So they very clearly label their milks as being alternative with whatever that alternative is. So they'll right. call it almond milk or soy milk or cashew milk or whatever milk that they're doing. And the and basically the same thing applies for the meat is like they are most of their their consuming audience are people who are trying to find a specific meat alternative. And so because it's meant to imitate meat, it has that name in it. I don't know. It just feels like they're just trying to make life difficult for those companies for no other reason than I think some companies that produce those similar products. So the actual milk producers, the actual meat producers are feeling threatened by those alternatives and think that going after their name is what's going to reduce consumption. And I'm like, I think the percentage of people who consume this by accident because the confusion from the name is so vanishingly small that changing the name will be negligible if 
noticeable at all in how people are choosing these products. As a matter of fact, it might just impact the products themselves. Like people might buy them less versus like people mistakenly buying them. So right. anyway, let's get back to these fish. So in a more recent study in 2013, found that the same proportion, about 33% of fish that were that were brought in were mislabeled with the majority of those mislabeled fish appearing in restaurants specifically. That is that the fishers were specifically trying to mislead restaurants. And also there is probably a lot more opportunity there because it's maybe from direct from boat to table or like the purveyors are able to do certain things like that versus like having some kind of other regular checks in place. Also, those are probably not the people who are going to be expert enough to recognize that there is a discrepancy. So they're unlikely to catch mislabeled fish. And again, particularly if they're already skinned and boned and all they see is like slabs of flesh. And they're like, sure, that could, that could be Alaskan halibut. What do I know? Right. And then pay those, you know, those fees accordingly and then charge those fees accordingly when everybody's just eating the same fish. Right. Everybody's eating tilapia. <laughs> that's that's it. That's the only fish there is. So just kidding. <laughs> you might be wondering if it is the fact that people just confused one species for another. As again, I said, there was some intentional and unintentional. But if it is the fact that they're just confused and we're like, oh, we'll just give them the benefit of the doubt here. Then they did so in a, in a serendipitously lucrative way because just you would think coincidentally some of the expensive fish that were hard to catch and worth more were being sold for less than they were worth, where some of the cheap fish were being sold for more than they're worth. But the vast majority of the time, what research has found is that the cheap, less desirable species were being sold in lieu of the more expensive high ticket items. And so it's sort of just coincidental, I guess, that those cheaper fish were being sold for, for more money. And I, I, maybe you could sort of make the argument that there was more of those cheaper fish and that's why they were cheaper and that so it was more likely to skew toward those being confused. But nevertheless, if that was the case, then you'd feel like you'd be able to tell the difference between you're like, I know that I caught all the same fish. I'm going to call this batch of the same fish that I know what it is over here, my Alaskan halibut and this batch of fish that I cut over here, my sea bass <laughs> and Knowing that they're the exact same fish, what confused, you know, I'm just confused. I thought that these, you know, I don't know. It just seems like that is maybe a hard sell for me personally, but it also got me wondering. I wonder if this is why every time somebody tries new meat, they say it tastes just like chicken and it's because Colonel maybe Sanders. Yeah, <laughs> it actually is chicken. Someone's like, <laughs> here, I got you chicken. They're like, oh, I wanted to try something different. And they look at the plate and they put it back and they say, here, I got you giraffe. And they're like, that's the that's the same thing no. you just handed. You just you just handed that to me and said it was chicken. No, it's giraffe. Try it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. I uh, when I was younger and I was in my meat eating days, there was a place in Gainesville. that sold rattlesnake. You could buy rattlesnake tacos. And straight up, it just tasted like spicy chicken. It was spicy chicken. It was spicy chicken. It was probably just like ground chicken that was made to look smaller because it came from a smaller animal. It was probably chicken, but they called it rattlesnake. And the next time I went to that restaurant, they did not have it on the menu. So either rattlesnake didn't sell well or they got in trouble for mislabeling their meats. Mystery meats. Mystery meats. So to kind of go further into this, though, it just as another example of mislabeled foods, in a 2017 survey of sushi restaurants in Los Angeles, they found that half, half, 50%, half of them, of the fish were not labeled as being the correct fish, right? So Jacket and Polly argue that this practice has led to the, the degradation of fisheries, consumer losses, and even impacted consumer health. So there are these arguments. I think of specifically when you go into, and this is a nice and easy like thing that you can pick up. If you go to a restaurant and you order crab and it's spelled with a K, it's not crab. Even if it's spelled with a C, it might not be crab. <laughs> yeah, even, I mean, by this logic, it's probably not crab anyway. But specifically, I mean, if it's spelled with a K, it's called crab and it kind of tastes like crab, but it's just kind of a, a repurposed fish. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is that it's not that hard to manipulate food products to, to appear texture and taste and color as other food products. And so... It does make sense that when possible, you know, you can make a lot more money by just putting a little effort to make this this one cheap thing look like this expensive thing and then sell it for more. Yeah. That's why this podcast is premium content that costs you $100 that you didn't know was slowly being drained out of your bank account as you listen. Surprise. Just kidding. You'll never find us. We're offshore. <laughs> That's obviously not happening. We're free. Yay. 
as free humans, let's talk about humans for a second. Let's. That's a great segue. (laughs) (laughs) So are names important for how we see each other as people? I would imagine that as you kind of go through and think about this, you'll probably think of important names in your life. But I have been told that I look like an Eric uh, a Sam or something like that. Have you oh. been told that you look like different people? I've gotten a few different ones, but the most common by far is I've been told that I look like a Seth. I don't know huh. why. I don't feel like I look like a Seth. I don't know. Do you feel like you look like an Eric? I don't feel like I look like an Eric. I don't know what I look like. I mean, I feel like a Shane, but I don't know what that means. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is kind of funny that like if it were the fact that the names were really were sort of matching your face then I feel like it wouldn't have to be an American name at all. Like it could just be anything. Yeah. It could just be any combination of sounds. Like you look like a, (laughs) (laughs) which is what I look like to be fair. (laughs) Right now we're just both in very disheveled States for those of us that can't see us, but yeah, (laughs) I guess it's the question is have you as a listener, have people told you that you look like your name or that you look like you should have a different name? I mean, have you had that experience? We would love to know. So please write us in and let us know if you, if that's been the case. I feel like there's some amount of small talk that can happen where you meet someone for the first time and you tell them your name and they're like, oh, you you look like you look like you're uh, Angelica. I don't know where that came from, but um, <laughs> they, they say that to you and sort of like, thank you. I yeah, sure. If somebody told me I looked like an Angelica, I would be concerned. I would be like, you should get your eyes checked. Yes. Shane clearly is not an Angelica. He is a Karen. <laughs> that's that's what I've been going for all these years. That's why I grew my hair out. <laughs> all right. Anyway, going on. So I found some really interesting pieces of information in here that there's food for thought. You know, we've been talking a lot about food. And so here's some for your thinking <laughs> in a statistically significant number of winners of U.S. presidential elections. The victor has had more syllables in their name than the loser, which I I thought was really interesting. Now, it's not 100%, of course, that would be incredible. But as of 2021, 68% of the victorious candidates had longer names than their opponent. There are plenty of of races in which they had the same number of syllables in their names. There's not not that much variability in name syllables. But yeah, in 68%, the victorious candidate had longer names than their opponent. I thought that that was really interesting. and now. In this article I was referencing here, it was an online article, it wasn't peer-reviewed, but they point out that it was very unlikely that this was any kind of direct cause-effect relationship, of course, but there might be some factors that may have had a small impact. So, for example, consider that shorter names can be more easily associated with words with which one might be familiar that have an association that might be easy to make fun of or maybe something that might be unpleasant for some people. So, just some candidates in the past... Cox is one. Dole mm-hmm. is another. Gore is another. Uh-huh. Bush, obviously one, yeah. but a couple of Bushes have won. But these single syllable names and like all of those sound like other words that we use in the English language. Yeah. Some of them in not so pleasant ways. <laughs> <laughs> That's a way to put it. Yeah. I'm trying to be diplomatic here. <laughs> they also pointed out that longer names can sort of sound more regal. You know, they sort of sounds like they're more important because they take a while to say, I guess. There are exceptions, of course, to this rule, but it's just interesting, I thought, to consider that even if the name wasn't relevant to whether the candidate received votes, it's possible that it may have subtly, in a very small way, helped move that candidate through some of the selection process, maybe at lower levels of government, maybe through primaries, that sort of thing, that if someone was undecided and they're like, well, I I like the sound of that name a little bit more, I doubt that that was significant enough to impact most elections. But if it pushed, you know, a few votes here or there, then then that that could have had an effect. Kind of looking at those types of effects, names can also play a role in understanding bias. So, for instance, in a 2014 study, we found that there was a small but significant difference in bias against immigrants, depending on how their names fit in with their new cultural community. That is, respondents were more likely to be flagged as immigrants or have difficulty being hired or targeted by immigrant authorities or self-proclaimed authorities right. in those spaces if their name sounded foreign. So just the fact that, the, that somebody might have a foreign sounding name could cause a whole host of problems. Right. And so specifically, it's actually somewhat well known that people who are immigrating, for example, to the United States will change their name. And the New York Public Library disputes the idea that immigrants were forced to change their name or, or that they were even 
encouraged to change their names when they got to Ellis Island, thinking back, you know, like a hundred years ago or more. But instead, they suggested that immigrants will often voluntarily change their names to try and fit in with the culture, specifically for the reasons we mentioned to avoid being targeted because they thought it was better for their their prospects in business or being hired or for finding housing. And all of that's likely true, honestly. Yeah. I mean, I have some friends who had, they were only removed by like a generation or two from a very different last name that was like legally and willingly changed to fit in with a culture. My friend Austin has a very specific last name that was very unique, but it was shortened from like Jakanovich or something a little bit more Slavic or, or Eastern European. So, but it was changed like a generation off. Like it wasn't that long ago. Yeah. And then thinking about uh, John Oliver did a whole thing on this with Trump's their family name being Drumpf uh-huh. and changed to Trump to have a more appealing sound. And then it is whole make America Drumpf again. <laughs> that was a few years ago now, but yeah, I thought, you know, that's not uncommon for people to change their first or last or both names to try and sound more like they fit in either innocuously or even in a way that sounds really positive. They have some victorious sounding name. Yeah, absolutely. Now, if you live in the United States, you may have noticed that there are some names that are considered masculine or feminine, and these distinctions are arbitrary. We know that. We recognize that. But they are remarkably enduring and consistent in our United States here in the country. So, for instance, nine out of the top 10 common quote-unquote girls' names in the U.S. end with A. So, like Mia, Olivia, Anna, those types of names. In fact, feminine types of names generally tend to begin with or end with or contain a relatively high proportion of vowels, whereas all 10 of the top 10 quote unquote male names in the US start with a hard consonant and only three of the top 20 end with a vowel sound at all. And only one in the top 100 ends in an A. Yeah. So whereas 90% of the top 10 what would be considered, as you said, quote unquote, female names in the United States end with an A. Only 1% of the top 100, quote unquote, you know, determined to be male names in the United States ends with an A. So there's some very clear differences and people have a real sense, I think, of comfort in knowing that if you hear a name that it belongs with a particular gender and as we'll get into it, a particular race as well. And that I think people like preserving that sense of designation, of distinction across what they perceive to be important boundaries, potentially as it relates to sort of someone's caste or their, you know, their level in the United States, or at the very least, what category that they believe that that person belongs to. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So in a 1995 article in the Journal of American Sociological Review, in that particular journal by Lieberson and Mickelson. So many sons. They survey common African-American names and evaluate syllable and gender trends. And they found initially that Africans took or were given very common American sounding names, but that over time, African-Americans have blended names from African heritage with common American names to create culturally unique names. And that's something I think that that's been happening over the last century, if I remember correctly from that, that article and a similar consideration to what might be considered a name that sounds like it belongs to a minority of someone who is African-American. There was a study, this is one of the most famous studies ever published on this, Bertrand and Melanathan, I think is how it's pronounced, Uh in 2004 in the journal American Economic Review. I mean, this is cited everywhere, everywhere. There were some places where it would even said in previous studies, and it was hyperlinked, and I clicked on it, and it brought me back to this study. So they conducted this, this classic study, in which what they did is they created fictitious resumes and they take the exact same resume and they would put something that sounded like a traditionally American sounding name like Emily or Greg or what might what they thought might be more sort of African-American sounding names like Lakeisha or Jamal. And they sent those resumes. So, again, they were the same resume, the exact same resume. Right. They just had mm-hmm. what they considered either sort of traditional white American names or traditional African-American sounding names. And they sent these to various employment agencies and the names that were more traditionally white received 50% more callbacks than those that sounded like they were African-American names, even though again, they had the exact same resumes. They were the exact same credentials. And so this set off a flurry of similar studies to try and reproduce these results. And they, and they have, and actually in similar studies, 
Researchers have found the similar bias between male and female names on the exact on identical resumes, where the male names received more callbacks than female names for the exact same resume. However, in this one, what was kind of interesting is that there was a disparity that depended on the position that they were applying for and the company. And so in this one, they specifically only applied to what they considered low skill jobs, meaning you didn't have to have a lot of specific training. You just they they would expected people with little specific job training to come on and hire them. And that would rule out any qualifications on the resume that were unique to like, oh, you need to have a background in this. It was really just like you have a pulse and can, you know, do do things for me. <laughs> yeah. And so those are the kind of jobs they applied for. But the specific positions that they applied for, they did find that there was a bias where some of them did hire women more often than that men, but those were lower positions. That was kind of interesting there. One important point that we want to make here is that this is not an issue of saying that you should change your name or do any of those things. This is more so providing insight on how names and implicit bias occur within these spaces. And it's wrong, right? Like, I mean, it's, it's, it's seriously a problem. If I see a resume that says Jamal and I skip over it, even though this person is highly qualified simply because the name sounds black, that's a problem. Absolutely. That is a racism issue. And so what we're saying here is don't go change your name. Don't do any of those things. I'm not, we're not saying that. What we're saying is this highlights an important issue of how naming has an impact in current cultures and different systems that need to change, not necessarily naming systems. Now, it was also interesting in one of those studies, they found that for companies who specifically made it known that they were proud of like diversity of hiring, this is actually a different study, but uh, what they found was that people who were African-American, they didn't try and whitewash their resume as much and tried to actually stick really true to themselves. And that's there's a whole thing that we didn't get into of African-Americans sort of whitewashing the resumes for companies. But in cases where there were companies that promoted the idea that they were diverse companies, for those ones, they they didn't try and hide their names because they felt like they would be more well-received. But yeah, as you said, essentially what this has meant is that a lot of people have tried to adapt to a system they know is biased by trying to play into that bias to give themselves an advantage where they otherwise were disadvantaged. Yes. And that, my friends, is privilege. <laughs> yeah, We need to be mindful of that. I used to hire people at the large coffee company that I worked at. It was called Shane's Roasting. Yeah, it was called Shane. Shane's Roasting Beans. Yeah, Shane's <laughs> Roasting Beans. I had somebody apply and I sk immediately skipped over their application, not because of their name, but because they spelled their name. Their name had an A in it and they spelled it with an anarchy symbol. They replaced the A in their name with an anarchy symbol, which I was like, from the pr that pr perspective, I was like, I'm just worried that they're going to cut they're, they're just going to wreak havoc. And also I knew who that person was and they were a horrible employee. So it was also like twofold. They would have been a horrible employee. I'd worked with them previously, but the fact that they replaced their a with an anarchy symbol astounded me. Was it like Aryan America and all the a's were, were anarchy. <laughs> <laughs> all of them, every one of them, every one of them. The X was a whole different thing. So anyway, I think this brings us to a conversation about something within this idea of naming and labeling. It's called normative determinism or name-driven outcomes. And basically what this argument is, is that it's, it's a phenomenon that suggests that a name or label is going to determine those social outcomes or outcomes for the named, labeled, or identified organism or object. So kind of what we've been talking about is, yes, names do seem to have an influence on what happens next, right? Or how people perceive that thing. But this makes the argument that with a certain name, an outcome is pinpointed or an outcome is derived. And so we are talking about something a little bit different than normative determinism. We are not talking about specifically that once you get a name, your fate is sealed. What we're talking about is, is that the culture or the context in which you're operating in might be influenced by how things are labeled. And this is taken to sort of an extreme in, in the last study here, which is by Zwebner and colleagues in 2017 in the journal Attitudes and Social Cognition. And what they did is conducted several studies in several different countries in which they had people and computer programs to try and choose a name for a picture of somebody. So there'd be a picture. And I, I didn't actually read if they had multiple choice or if they just generated it. I assume it was multiple choice. But they found that if names were just randomly assigned, then they were up to 20% accurate 
which makes me think that it was multiple choice again because I don't understand how you could possibly generate names and be anywhere close to 20% accurate. But if <laughs> names were randomly assigned, then they were about 20% accurate in terms of the name matching the picture versus if the computer software program, whatever it was, or a person tried to choose what they thought that person looked like, they were accurate 28% of the time. And although 28 is low, it is still higher than chance levels in this case. And so the research team here suggested that at birth, there are no physical characteristics of a baby that would inform what name would best fit to that baby's face. Maybe new parents would disagree, but they're essentially making the case like you don't look like an anything when you're first born. So people just randomly assign, well, they choose names they like, you know, but they otherwise, they, they just, uh, they apply a name, but that because people then later say that people look like the name they were actually given that in some small way, according to this team, they suggest that people must grow into their name, so to speak. So to sum this up, a baby's face is tabla rasa until they're a Richard. <laughs> That's right. And then they're a dick. <laughs> and then they're a dick. <laughs> I mean, oh, that's absurdist. <laughs> like, here's what I would say about that. It's like the way that something is labeled, it does not have a genetic effect on you. Like, that, doesn't le that doesn't logically make any sense. So this study is straight up just pure correlation, if it can even be called correlation, because it's so the percentages are so low. It's a pretty huge logical leap to suggest that names cause facial features to occur. Now, to be as diplomatic and generous as possible to this team, because like I see where they're coming from, whether like at birth, like there's there's no <laughs> again tab tabula rasa. There's no reason to think <laughs> that you would have any one name because your face hasn't formed into what it's going to eventually look like yet. But if once you are all growed, your name <laughs> seems to match your face according to a random sample of people, then like, wow, like how, how could that possibly possibly be accounted for when like random assignment isn't that accurate? And so like I get where they're coming from. And maybe I'm just going to hypothesize spitball here. You have people who feel like, OK, so let's say my name is Seth and I feel like Seth's look like this. And so you style your hair that way and maybe you wear clothes that look like you're a Seth and like. That's not going to really, there's no, there is no archetype of Seth in this example, but for whatever reason, that association is broad enough in the culture that people look at it and they say, out of these five options, I'll go with Seth for that person. That could be maybe what's going on is people will sort of try and style themselves to look like what they feel like their name is. But even then... Like that just seems like it's a lot, as you said. Yeah, the names are totally arbitrary. Like they're just they're just sounds or like symbols that have no bearing on changing the actual physical reality of things. They change very much how we react to them, sure, and how we behave with respect to them, and that that's huge for sure. But the names themselves don't like I, I'm not going <laughs> to if I look at my my one dollar bill and say you're a hundred dollar bill. It doesn't change the fact that it's a one dollar right. bill much as I you know, much as I may wish that it would. But also this would suggest to you that like as your face changes, if it doesn't fit, then would you then change your name to match your face? Like what if I get into a horrific fight or I go to battle and then I lose an eye and I have these really crazy scars on my face? But then I can't be a Shane anymore because a Shane is supposed to look sweet and cuddly like a big teddy bear, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, so definitely. I don't look like a Shane anymore. I look like, I don't know, I changed my name to Braveheart or Conquest <laughs> or something like that. Like, I feel like there's this weird, this weird, like, it just doesn't, it doesn't line up. It takes, there are a lot of steps to get to that end result. And there's probably a simpler way to explain that. Like, that maybe regionally, culturally, those names are common for people that might share those features based on where they live and their heritage and their genetic lines and all that stuff that makes more sense the name is not it's not a chicken or an egg thing right like you don't like your face doesn't exist and then you get a name and then all of a sudden you have a face like you're born with these genetics the name is culturally relevant they just happen to be correlated on some level i do like the idea that you don't have a face until you get a name and then all of a sudden it's like poof face <laughs> Congratulations. I don't know what to do for those babies that have been around for a week and they don't have a name. Uh, yeah, they just like I can't I can't even see what they look like. They're just this blank slate to me. 
<laughs> thinking about this as practically as scientifically as possible and why we might react to them in a particular way is just that any name that we give like there's there is an arrangement of syllables consonants and vowels and how those consonants and vowels sort of bounce off of each other they complement contrast and interact with each other it's easy to sort of say that relative to the sounds we're used to making in our cultural language that some of these will sound a little more familiar and pleasant to us and and also like if they're already associated with things for which we have some kind of opinion about you know about those things so you know if i hear this consonant digraph vowel consonant sound shane i'm like oh that sounds pleasing to the ears just it just hits hits my ears mm-hmm. just right yes it does my mouth makes that sound in a way that just feels right you know, I get it. But then you hear this this gross arrangement of syllables and, and vowels and consonants like Abraham. And you're like, Ugh, like, I just feel like Ugh, I had to kind of choke no. it out. Like, Abraham is great. <laughs> I like that there's multiple syllables. <laughs> well, thank you. That feels good. The point being, like, it's easy to understand that, like, the fact that there's going to be this arrangement of syllables that we're used to hearing those kind of sounds and making those kind of sounds. We're going to react to them in, in, a, in a way different than ones that are very alien to the language and the culture in which we're used to the arrangements of sounds we're used to hearing, right? Right. And and I think too, to kind of, to that point, there is, or has to be some level of familiarity, right? Names that have associations with people, not just the sounds, but like the full name, all that, that accompaniment, maybe tone, inflection, all that stuff has to be related to on some level people and experiences. And you probably don't think or wouldn't think much of it. Although it might kind of feel odd if I called you Cameron. Yeah. You're, you're a camera. Right? If I just said like, you're being a real Cameron right now. Immediately, I think of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Nice. But what if I said, you're being a real Karen? <laughs> Similar sounds. We all know. But I'm going to react to the, the latter very differently, right? Right. And yeah, just as just as you said, it's that it's like, what are the associations and experiences we've had? Like, if you've worked with a Sarah that you were like, I hate that person. She's the worst. Don't like that Sarah. So the next time I meet someone named Sarah, I'm like, ew, you're bad people I know right now. And that's, that's just sort of what you've experienced. My brother's expecting a baby right now and has quite possibly the best possible name for this child for her to arrive and refuses to name this baby, this cool name based on the fact that he worked with somebody who he didn't like, who has a kid with the same name. Exactly. Is that the way we then experience and react to other, other people who have that name comes from our context and experience with it. So mm-hmm. therefore we might subtly or overtly, but mostly subtly react to names based on their relative significance to us. So being on the receiving end of that will be one of the factors, however small that contributes to the experiences we have. So for example, people who have these uncommon names are going to probably get a lot of practice and generally expect to have to frequently repeat their name and probably spell it. Right. So if you have a name that's not very common and people, you know, you have to introduce yourself or people are asking you at Barstuck's uh, coffee what your name is <laughs> and you say it and they're like, I'm sorry. And then you say it again because every time someone asks for your name, you have to say it again. And they're like, can you spell that for me? And then you have to spell it out. So like that is one type of experience that you might have, depending on what your name is, that will affect sort of what your life ends up being like. It's not going to shape your face or your personality probably in any meaningful way, but it is going to shape the context of many of your social interactions. And uh, similar to people who have like names that, that sound similar to others, even if it's common, you might feel like you then have to sort of over enunciate your name or spell it out again. If you, I'm trying to think of a good one, like Jack and Zach, maybe mm-hmm. people just hear the act part and they're like, what was your name? And you're like, Zach. Zach, Z- right. Zach. And so like you might get used to having to do that if people are mishearing parts of your, maybe that's maybe not a great example, but people are mishearing your name. You just get used to over enunciating the syllables that people miss. And again, not going to be like the thing that determines who you are, but might be one of those factors that just contributes to your overall experiences and your social interactions. And that's just, that's just one of those, those pieces of understanding, like why a name might actually be important to somebody in some small way. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. The other day, and this is something I've been trying to practice is because I teach a lot. So I have like a, I have a lot of students who like, I see a lot of different names. So I try to get a roster before the class so I can actually try to pronounce the names that I don't know how to pronounce. So I had somebody in my class recently whose name was spelled S I O B H A N Siobhan Siobhan. I had no idea. I was like, 
Siaban? Siaban? Yeah. And they were like, no, Siobhan. It's like, and I was like, oh, the, uh, the Irish. It's the, it's like an Irish spelling of Siobhan. And I was like, thinking of that and how like Gaelic is such a very specific language with such specific enunciations and like word sound combinations. It's so unique. And I, and I gave up trying to learn it. Like not the name, but Gaelic. The first time I ever saw S-E-A-N, I definitely thought it was pronounced scene. Yeah. And I was reading it that way and, and saying the name scene and and then not, not understanding. Like, that is a way of spelling the name Sean for some reason that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's actually a reason that does make sense, just as you said with, with Siobhan. But yeah, like, that's absolutely a thing is... For the person who is having their name constantly said incorrectly or or expecting people to say, sorry, how do you say your name? You know, without attempting it. Mm -hmm. And people then will form preferences about like, do I want people to ask me? Do I want them to try and guess? Do I expect that they're just going to know it? And people approach that differently. Well, but I think on the other side of that, too, is when you have to put more effort into like enunciating a name and like doing going through those efforts, you end up developing a, a unique learning history with that person versus somebody who you don't have. Like I how many mics I meet all the time. Like there's plenty of mics out there, but when I do meet somebody with a unique name, now I remember this person forever because I had a unique experience with that person. And anytime I meet somebody with that unique name, I go, Oh yeah, this was like this instead of being like, Oh yeah, I know like 15 mics. Right. Yeah. You can just, you can just assume like if you meet someone new, like your name's Mike, right? Like how did you know? <laughs> I saw this study by as Webner. It, right. Yeah. It yeah, yeah. tells me that your name is Mike. Yeah. You look, you look like a Mike. And also there was a pretty good chance you were going to be a Mike. So <laughs> <laughs> I could tell by your face, you're a Mike <laughs> yeah. and the fact that you are a, a human. <laughs> so, so we should probably wrap this up. Like this is, we've yeah. been talking about this a lot. So let's go ahead and like get to take home points. And one of the first ones, honestly, being, as you said, we've been talking about this a lot. This is not comprehensive. There are so many other categories in which names are relevant or thinking about how names function for us is relevant, but I think there's this initial reaction that a name is, is arbitrary and therefore unimportant, but we've actually found that even though they're arbit arbitrary, they can be extremely important. So much so that the existence of an entire species may depend on its name. Yeah. So, and another thing too, is there are issues with names in specific sociocultural aspects, right? So we know that there are particular biases. There's implicit bias when it comes to certain sounding names and labels. And there are plenty, plenty of articles on ethnic sounding or gender oriented or gender expression related names. There's plenty of stuff out there. I recommend spending some time in that literature. What I really want to impart on everybody is that it's not a naming issue. The issue is not the name. The issue is not the culture associated with the name. The issue is not those things. The issue is a social issue related to implicit bias and in the histories related to that name within the culture and shaping that up. Like we talked about that with the resumes. All those resumes were great. The problem was is that the people reviewing those had implicit bias. They had issues related to certain names. And that's something that has to be undone, not the naming. Perfect. Yeah, I think the only other, I think, really main point to take home from this discussion is is just sort of this idea that a name is essentially a referent. It is a way that we label things in our environment, and those labels carry weight, as I mentioned before. And they are, in fact, arbitrary, but they are always going to be situated inside of the culture and language that we're participating in at the time, and particularly that we're the most familiar with. And something we didn't actually say during this, but I think is definitely something important to end on, is that those associations easily change over time. They will almost predictably change over time because they always change how we think about things and the associations that we have. And there are people with agendas who want those associations to mean one thing or another and will try and move that. So just getting my office reference in here, when the character Andy comes on the show and is sort of competing with the character Dwight. <laughs> and so he tries to undermine him by saying like, so that as Dwight Schrute was the character He's like, oh, I really shrewded that one up. And he's trying to build a negative association with that name <laughs> by implying that it was something pejorative with that character. So yeah. it's like it's a like kingpin. Real. Did you ever see that? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I was I was yeah. thinking about this. The Spider-Man character. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. No, not the Spider-Man character. The, the bowling movie. Right. It's, like, it's real Munson over here. You know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. It feels good. Cool. Shall we move on to recommendations? Let's do it. All right, so 
My recommendation is mostly for people who use Macintosh computers. Mm-hmm. If you use a Windows computer, the Windows, I think, automatically does this, but Mac does not. There is this specific app called Magnet. And on a Mac computer, what you can do is you can snap a window that you have open to a side of the screen, like the top, the bottom, the right, the left, or fill in the whole screen and various iterations of that by just hitting like a quick key combination. So like, let's say, for example, you want exactly half of your screen to be a Word document you're typing and the other half of your screen to be a website that you're referencing to inform that Word document or maybe an article that you're reading or something. Well, then you generally want to separate your screen 50-50. Right. But you sort of like spend time aligning them just right and get him to fill. And this you can just do tap this button, tap this button and boom, the windows could go exactly where you want them to go. And as I said, I think Windows does this automatically. I think that's just built into it. Yep. But on Macs, my recommendation is get magnet because it is the best thing. And it's it just makes life so much easier. I use a PC and windows and it is just beautiful. I, I've yeah. been using it for years and it's just so nice. Like I can snap in all different ways. And then I have got this really great layout that I can mess with. So it's beautiful. My recommendation is as many folks who know me know that I'm just like a Marvel cinematic universe dork, (laughs) just a comic book dork in general, but WandaVision just came out the first two episodes and Holy moly. (laughs) That's the only way I can say it. It is wonderful. If you're not familiar with what WandaVision is, WandaVision is the first official Marvel cinematic universe television show. You had Daredevil and Jessica Jones and Defenders and Iron Fist and, and Luke Cage, and they were all part of the MCU. Like loosely, of? yeah. Not like officially, I think. Yeah, they, they've they've kind of updated it where they're kind of maybe retconning that, maybe. But officially, under Marvel Studios and Disney, WandaVision is this first one. They spent something like $25 million per episode, which is insane. Whoa. It's Technically the most expensive television show ever made. What? Even compared to Game of Thrones? Even compared to Game of Thrones, yeah. But let me tell you, these first two episodes blew my mind. So it's Wanda, Scarlet Witch, and it's Vision. And they're like living in this like happy little town where they are um, trying to live a normal life. And it's scripted and written and and shot like a, a sitcom, like a 50s, 60s sitcom. Right. Like it looks like I Dream of Genie. And bewitched, yes. and they act like that, where it's like they're and they're even filmed it in front of a live studio audience, so there is a laugh track. What? Like they're not a laugh track, but there is like an actual laughter. They did all the stuff to like make it really authentic. So what's cool is you can watch it and it feels like you're watching it. It's like silly and goofy and all that. And then there are these small nuggets where you're like, what the hell was that? Like it makes you so it's very unsettling. Like it feels like a horror movie when you watch it because it's done so well. I mean, they have like goofy cartoon animations like Bewitched does and all this stuff. It is really impressive what they've done and how, I mean, I could not stop just staring at the screen. I was so sucked into this universe. It's, it's so cool. We should say this is on the Disney plus platform, which is not a supporter of ours. Not to say that they wouldn't be just that we don't have official endorsement from them. Yeah. But anyway, I saw the first episode and I was, I wasn't really sure what to make of it. I feel like the second episode will provide more context, but what I will say is I really did get that, that thing that you mentioned of like, there's something surreal and almost off putting about how, like what's happening in this because it's, it's a little too over the top. Yeah. Cartoonishy. And it's like you understand, like there seems to be they're building to something underlying that's sort of malicious. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I'm very curious to see how this goes because I was like watching the first episode and I was like, what did I just see? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it feels like that. And I, I one thing I really have to say about it is like the writing in it is really good. Like the 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 little hints and nuggets they drop to have like multiple meetings are just beautiful. Like it's scripted so well. Cool. Anything else uh, on our recommendations? Nope, that's it. Real quick then, we have a teaser for our upcoming episode. The month is February 1847. We are now 10 months out from the beginning of this journey. Hunger has reached a new level and the remaining members are taking alternative methods to satisfy their appetite. The tale of the Donner Party introduced many of us to this idea of cannibalism, and this leads us to an interesting debate. Is there a form of modern day, dare we say, encouraged and accepted form of cannibalism? And how does the betrayal of one member end up saving everyone else's lives? So we are just a few weeks away to find out the answers to these questions and learn more about our upcoming episode on the psychology of the Donner Party. 
Woo! So excited for that. It's going to be so much fun. That was my attempt at a movie trailer guy voice, which was yeah, felt, it felt like regular Abraham voice, but you know. Yeah, no, it worked. It worked. All right, perfect. All right, well, if you use Screen Magnets or watch WandaVision and want to talk to us about that, we're happy to hear it. If you have a name and you'd like to share it with us, we'd definitely be interested in, in hearing whatever <laughs> name that you might have. If you have any thoughts on names that you'd like to share with us, we would really love to hear from everybody for everything you have to say to us, uh, nice or mean. We prefer nice, but you know, if you if you have a criticism, we'll certainly are willing to hear critical feedback and all that. So please reach out to us at info at www.podcast.com. You can also reach us on all the social media platforms, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Reddit. We're on Reddit, by the way. Yeah, we're there. All those things. If you are listening to us on a, uh, a podcast service, consider subscribing if you haven't already. If you'd like to support us financially, join us on Patreon and we'll give you some some goodies. And as a quick update for those of you who are listening, you've probably been seen, but our 200th episode is going to be coming out in just a little bit. It is going to be a lot of fun. So I uh, look forward to sharing that with everybody. I think that's it. Do you have anything else? Nope, that's it. All right. This is Abraham. And this is Shane. We are out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcast or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. So real quick on our notes, uh, it says Harry, um, the name Harry um, versus like a hairy nose. And I'm just thinking of like an otter with a human nose. It's one of my favorite things that has happened to me oh, man. today. I did so. not even think about the fact that I wrote this at six in the morning and so was not being careful.